This is a fresh agenda, bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work. Here is Christina Mendonca. Hey everyone, I'm Christina Mendonca and this is a fresh agenda where we talk to innovators, entrepreneurs and thought leaders and try to find out how through the distractions of life they get at their deepest work. We are now well into October, well into fall, and this has got to be the most underrated time of the year, at least in Northern California, because you have sunny days during the day, but cool mornings, dressing in layers. Uh, it's all about, you know, it's all about autumn, and I just love it. So I hope you're having a great fall as well. Um, as I talk to you today, I am getting ready to take a trip to Atlanta for a big project for something called P20. Payments 20. They are people that are coming from all over the world to Atlanta to discuss uh, the tra transaction business. So anytime you swipe a card, uh, insert a card, and pay for something online, which you know pretty much everyone in the world does, at least in developed countries, uh, they are in charge of all of that. So I'm kind of excited to meet some of the people I'll be meeting there this week. Also very busy uh, with the KFBK and iHeartMedia. Loving the morning show, absolutely loving it. Don't even mind that I have to get up in the middle of the night. It is so much fun to be back in news and to be connecting with people on that way, in that way. And Dan and I are doing some fun interviews too. So uh, we just interviewed comedic icon Carol Burnett. She's coming to town in a couple of weeks. So we chatted with her about how she inspires the female comedians of today, like the Amy Pollers and the Tina Fey's. And you can see that entire interview on the KFBK website. You can go to Dan's blog page or my blog page. That's so just kfbk.com. In the meantime, we're doing a second season of Folsom Focus. So we're covering some really interesting stories. Uh, one of the ones that I'll be doing in the weeks to come has to do with the fire department. And something interesting I found out about, this is, you know, relates to fire departments all over the world. Um, this particular fire department has a sauna in it. And I thought, well, that's kind of special and nice for the firefighters until the fire captain, uh, the fire chief explained to me that the sauna is actually um, something medical that firefighters are using now all over the world. Apparently with breathing apparatus, of course, you don't get the contaminants in your lungs for a from a fire, but they get through your skin. So sitting in a, a spa or a sauna really helps and uh, helps pull all of that out of your skin and helps reduce the cancer risk, which is fantastic. So I love when your research uh, leads to something fabulous for one of our first responders. And I'm actually going to be talking to someone who uh, is, you know, waist deep in new research when it comes to breast cancer. And this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So it's uh, perfect that we're able to have Dr. Ernie Bodai on the uh, podcast today. And he also is going to talk about his path to the breast cancer research stamp, which he pretty much single-handedly got off the ground. Uh, and he has a great story to tell about that. But first, I want to talk to you about kind of the theme of today. It's the theme of the interview with Dr. Bodai. And that is something called grit. You know, what allows people to continually pursue a goal and overcome obstacles at every turn? Now, we've all known these people. I'm thinking of a relative right now that I've known since he was a small child. I watched as in high school, he made the decision that he wanted to become a Navy SEAL. Um, then he trained in college and then he went through Naval basic training and then he studied and then he made it into BUDS, which is like the basic training for the SEAL teams. And then he made it through BUDS 
And then he became what I thought was, you know, the tip of the spear. And then now he's making it into other secret portions of the tip of the spear that um, I'm not privy to. But um, he's kind of a badass. And I'm super proud of him because I knew him when he was small and drawing pictures um, of, you know, of my husband and me and, and little animals and balloons. And so super proud of him. Uh, anyway, so grit is what I'm talking about. He has it. A lot of other people have it. Um, there is an author who wrote a book on it I'm reading right now. Uh, Angela Duckworth is the author's name. And the book is called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. And what comes to mind is, you know, she talks about West Point candidates in terms of their grit to get through a very challenging process to get into that university. But grit is really uh, doing things, accepting challenges that exceed your current skills. That's what it is. You, you see a challenge, you don't have the skills for it, but you accept it and you figure it out. When you're asked to do things you can't yet do, you rise to the occasion and it has little to do with talent and more to do with an attitude that you adopt as your brain continually looks for answers to problems that you're presented. There are certain characteristics that people with grit have. Uh, an appetite for risk is one of them. An adaptability to change. A passion for pushing yourself just a bit further mentally or physically or a drive to create. So those are some of the basic characteristics of grit. And I think you'll see those characteristics play out very well in my interview with Dr. Ernie Bodai today. Before we get to Dr. Bodai, I want to tell you about New Age Ariel. Dave and Fred. They're my good buddies now. New Age Aerial, it's more than a bird's eye view. New Age Aerial brings you beautiful vistas, breathtaking overviews, and an understanding of how things look from above. I put some video up recently. Dave and Fred of New Age Aerial took me out uh, to fly the birds and to uh, get, a, get a feel for the kinds of imagery we could get. And it was breathtaking. There's nothing like their drones and these aerial views they were able to get over lakes and rivers and bridges and some of the other things that we shot uh, around Northern California. From movies to commercial photography and video, the drone team at New Age Aerial can get you the shots you need for a fraction of the cost of hiring a pilot and plane. These guys are experienced flyers too. It's not just pretty pictures. Government agencies trust them during big crises. They can send up a drone with guided monitoring from like an engineer on the ground to get exactly the photos and video needed when there's big public works projects or things that need to be fixed. But they're, again, also artists in the sky, getting those unforgettable and scenic shots that open movies and thrill at the beginning of large business presentations. So proud to have them as a sponsor. Proud to call Dave and Fred friends because they are innovators in drone technology and use. New Age Aerial. Check them out online at newageaerial.com. Enter promo code FRESHAGENDA and let them know that you heard about them here. Okay, so our guest today, uh, Dr. Ernie Bodai, fascinating guy, born in Budapest, Hungary. He and his family lived in a bomb shelter for nearly a year there before they managed to escape during the Hungarian Revolution. Uh, he immigrated to the United States, received his BA and MS from uh, UCLA, got his MD from uh, California or UC Davis, and he's also a clinical professor of surgery there. He went into the breast cancer trade, uh, surgery, went into breast cancer surgery. And after watching hundreds of patients, uh, he decided that something needs to be done. Something needs to be done beyond what I can do as a surgeon on a day-to-day -day basis. So he's going to tell that story now. 
Dr. Ernie Bodai joins me now, and I know that you uh, are having a lot of fundraisers this time of year because we are in Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And people know and have heard your name and know that you created the Breast Cancer Stamp. I want to start there. Tell me about that day that you had the idea for the stamp. Uh, I know you've probably told this story many times, but a lot of people haven't heard it. Sure, Christina. Thank you for asking. So the actual origin of the stamp comes from uh, Christmas Eve back in 1995 when I was uh, preparing a lecture for the American Cancer Society on the history of breast cancer surgery. And it's really fascinating that to look at the history, which goes all the way back to 4000 BC in the Egyptian times, uh, you have to go to art books instead of medical books. Medical books don't describe the history of, of uh, breast cancer at all. And as I was preparing this talk, I was looking through all these uh, beautiful art art textbooks, and all of a sudden I just got this kind of a brainstorm saying it'd be really great if there was a stamp for breast cancer. And then just literally moments later, I said, oh, you know what, if we could price that stamp a little bit higher than a normal stamp, the extra money could be donated to breast cancer research. Um, so that was the genesis of the idea. And of course, uh, that was right around the holidays. And so uh, in the next few days, I had composed a letter to uh, the United States Postal Service explaining the idea and the concept of what I wanted to do. And they uh, very quickly closed the door and said, you know, we can't do this for we're not a fundraising organization. If we do it for breast, we have to do it for colon and heart disease and Alzheimer's, et cetera, which I understood. Um, and so nonetheless, I was a little bit frustrated with that. So I decided that it would really take an act of Congress to authorize the Postal Service to issue a fundraising stamp. So the next thing I did was I wrote a letter to the female, there were actually 50 female representatives and senators and 1996, and I wrote I wrote them all a letter, and it was a cover letter, short, sweet, to the point, because they won't, they won't read anything that's longer than a page. So I summarized this idea, and believe it or not, I got not one response, not one senator or representative wrote back to me. So that kind of really infuriated me, and I decided that I was going to go to Washington and figure out why it is that nobody responded to this letter and the idea that I had. So. I went back there and I started knocking on the doors of the female representatives and senators and wanting to meet with them in person regarding the idea. And very interestingly, every one of them had my letter, but they did not respond because, as you can imagine, they get a lot of letters and ideas and whatnot on a daily basis. And I think that a lot of them, they don't really sort through unless somebody moves ahead and, and comes there in person perhaps showing that they're more dedicated to the idea than just writing a letter. And so basically I became a lobbyist and, you know, I know I really had no idea what I was doing because I'm a surgeon. And so what was interesting is that once I showed up in person, they saw that I was for real they started taking the idea more seriously. And I should remind you and your audience that I actually had to go back to one of the local libraries here and check out a phrase civics book to re-educate myself on how a bill becomes a law because you know we all learned that in civics but of course you all forget it so i got educated very quickly in becoming a lobbyist and um i made about within the span of a couple of years i made probably a dozen or more trips to washington dc to lobby for bills to get introduced which then would move through congress and um then authorize the postal service to do this so a couple of years after that mission started, we were able to get a bill introduced that passed the House and the Senate. 
at that time, it was uh, President Clinton signed the bill into law, and then the post office went to work on designing the stamp and selling the stamp. And very interestingly, they thought that the stamp would never sell. They thought they this is not going to be a big seller. And now we have sold over a billion with a B stamps. They've raised about $90 million for cancer research, every single penny of which has gone to cancer research. And uh, it's become the highest selling stamp the post office has ever issued. That is tremendous. You know, I mean, no one person is one dimensional, right? I mean, we all have different interests. But when you think of, you know, surgeons, the the, the job that they're doing on a day to day basis where other people's lives and, and their and their future is in their hands. I mean, most of the, most surgeons go play golf after they're done uh, for the day. I mean, because it's such a stressful position uh, and such a single minded position. What? Uh, what inspired you so much? Why, you know, when you first found out and the Postal Service said, eh, we don't do that. I mean, what made you keep going and thinking, well, I'm going to take this step and then this step and then this step? Well, I'll tell you, that's a great question. And I'll tell you what one of the biggest motivators for me was that um, I started talking to a lot of my patients back in those days. And I was telling them what I was doing and they became a very strong motivating force for me. And, you know, I'll tell you, there were many times where I was in Washington, D.C., and it was a cold, rainy night, and I was stuck in a cheap hotel, and nobody would talk to me. I couldn't get appointments and whatnot. And, you know, I literally would, had thought about quitting, and I, I couldn't do it because I couldn't come home and face all these ladies that were really excited about the project and tell them that we failed. So that really kept me going. And I got we assembled uh, an incredible uh, grassroots support effort where, you know, a lot of my patients would go out to the supermarkets on the weekend and collect uh, signatures, petitions, you know, for um, for the bills to get passed. And so I had a wonderful group of volunteers that I worked with, um, and we actually collected about almost a quarter million signatures in two years um, on petitions to, you know, make uh, the congressional uh, folks vote for the bill. And so it really was a big motivator for me to have all these ladies that were so involved in the project and so behind me that there was no way I could fail. I just couldn't do it. Wow. I remember I had just come to this market to work at the ABC affiliate when you were starting this. It was like 19, end of 1995, early 1996. So uh, since then, I mean, this stamp has been like your baby. I mean, what what is happening with the stamp now? It's continuing to sell. It's making millions and millions of dollars for research. What are you doing with it now? Well, it's interesting because, you know, every four years, the the bills that were passed originally was for two years, and I got it extended to four. And so every four years, I have to go back to Washington and get the bill reauthorized. So the current staff, I was actually, actually just in Washington about a week and a half ago, uh, starting work on reissuing the stamp, which expires at the end of next year. And so um, I've got already connected with some of the congressional friends of mine, and they're going to, when the next session uh, comes into play in January, we're going to start legislation immediately uh, to extend the stamp another four years. But what I'm going to change this time, or I'm going to attempt to change anyway, is to make it one of these forever stamps so I have to keep going back every four years and getting the legislation renewed. And what about other countries? I mean, I understand the stamp is like in more than 20 other countries. How does that work? How do you get the stamp into other into other you know governments and get them to pass the stamp? 
Yeah, that was that was that was a very interesting story as well. You know, the the second country that issued the stamp was Hungary, which is actually my native country. That's where I was born. And what I did was I started to uh, make friends in the State Department. And there were a couple of ladies in there who were real movers and shakers, and they were these uh, sort of consular diplomats. And so one of them happened to be working in Hungary that I got to know. And the key to getting a stamp in any country is to get the, the health minister, then the interestingly, the minister of transportation, because the postal services in other countries are all under the transportation department, as actually is the U.S. Postal Service. And... Um, then to get some key buy-in from, uh, you know, breast cancer support groups in the various countries. And if you get those elements together, um, then you can go to, you know, approach the um, the ambassador to each country um, from the United States, and they will help you get legislation passed. Believe it or not, it was a heck of a lot easier to get the stamp in foreign countries than it was in the United States. It was it was unbelievable. It was kind of almost like a embarrassing how easy it was to do because they saw, of course, we were building on the success of the United States. So they saw that this was a successful project and that it could work. So the other countries uh, that have issued the stamp um, have come fairly easily, some a little bit more difficult than others. Um, there are many countries, actually not many, but quite a few, more than half a dozen, where I was inches away from getting a stamp and then something political happened, and the whole thing died out. Uh, you know, it was it's it's you know so kind of amazing about this whole thing is that breast cancer is a very political issue, and it should not be. It really should not be, but it's been become become so politicized that everywhere you turn, there's something going on with breast cancer. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of the organizations that should be on the same page working for the same cause, don't really do that. They compete against each other for fundraising and notoriety and being on the news, you know, being in the White House, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, believe it or not, a lot of competition for uh, breast cancer research dollars and recognition. So this was kind of a unique project because it really wasn't owned by anybody. It wasn't owned by any one organization, but I will tell you, Without getting into specifics because it's kind of irrelevant at this point, but there were some organizations that actually opposed me during all my legislative efforts. And the reason they opposed me, which I found out, so that you have to be a rocket scientist to figure this out, is because they were not going to be the recipients of the fund that were raised. And so they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And some of them actually were quite hostile towards me. They thought I was a male and a surgeon, and I enjoyed removing female body parts and I had no business trying to raise my, it was, there were some really ugly things that I went through. Wow. It seems like anything that you want to do like that, there's, there's ugliness that you have to deal with on, along the way. I mean, that's, that's a theme that I've heard from a lot of people who have done something like this. It's everything becomes political when there are fiefdoms and structures that people are trying to protect. Uh, but talk to me a little bit about where the money does go. I mean, ha have there been any particular clinical trials or research that has, has come from money from the stamp that you're excited about? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the most exciting thing that's happened. First of all, the 70% of the money goes to the National Cancer Institute, and then 30% goes to the Department of Defense. And people are often shocked when they hear the DOD, but actually – the DOD has an incredible research arm, um, which has a political history of its own, but they actually do a lot of research on breast cancer, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, 
and a few other select diseases in there. Actually, I really like the DOD because they think a little bit outside the box, and they will fund uh, young researchers with new, fresh ideas as opposed to the NCI, which is a little bit more conservative to get money from the NCI. Most people have already gotten a grant from them, and they're kind of an old boys club, although they do great work. But I will tell you, I want to share something with you and your audience, which is absolutely mind-boggling. So there's um, about eight years ago, there was a new test that was developed, which is called Oncotype DX, which is a genetic analysis of 21 genes in an individual's breast cancer. So if I have a patient, we can do a genetic analysis of her, of her cancer, which applied to not one other woman in the world. It's just a profile on her. And what this test does, it gives you what's called a recurrent score. And the recurrent score tells you whether you will benefit from chemotherapy or not. So this started about seven years ago. And just two months ago, there was a long-term follow-up on this, uh, on how accurate this uh, study is. And it showed that every year going forward, we will be able to spare 70,000 women from chemotherapy. And the caveat to this is that all the news stories that carried this said that this study would never have been funded if it wasn't for the breast cancer stamp. The stamp money has funded this. It was unbelievable. And when I, when I heard that two months ago, I, I tell you, it chills up and down my spine because, you know, you'd mentioned the stress of doing surgery and everything, and you can, you can treat so many people in a, in a week or a day. But, you know, this... This has such far-reaching consequences way outside the realm of my office or the operating room. This affects so many women and their families. This is huge. It's, you know, that's almost a third of the women who are diagnosed with breast cancer are going to be spared the, the horrors of chemotherapy, the hair loss, the infections, the nausea, the vomiting, the fatigue. Oftentimes, um, you know, it can be even terminal. You know, chemotherapy is very deadly. Yeah, well, that's, that's, and it's such a decision. Big. It's that, and and when people are diagnosed, I mean, I've 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 held the hand of friends and and family members who had to make the decision of whether or not to have chemotherapy, and to be able to have a test like this to know whether or not it's going to benefit them before they go through those horrors. Yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. I mean, I I think that is the greatest accomplishment. Now, I must tell you, there's been a lot of other. Uh, very interesting findings uh, from all the studies because I get every year I get a list of all the studies that are funded. And one of the other big things that was actually funded in part with breast cancer stamp money is uh, what's called 3D tomosynthesis, which is a mammography of the future. It's like a much more accurate uh, way to image the breast than current mammography, even digital mammography. So that is coming into vogue. That was developed in uh, Florida. Uh, by a university, it was under grant money from the uh, stamp, and then now it's been licensed to, uh, I think, GE and Whole Logic and a bunch of other companies that are actually making the the sophisticated uh, part of the machine. You know, the, the all the theoretical work was funded by the stamp money, so that's what is bringing this product to market. Another very very interesting uh, uh, thing that was supported by the stamp money was development of technologies where. We can intraoperatively tell whether we have a clear margin. So, you know, many ladies who are diagnosed with breast cancer choose a lumpectomy as opposed to having the breast removed. And one of the problems that we have with the lumpectomies is that about 20 to 25 percent of the time when we remove the so-called lump, when the pathologist examines the tissue, they find a margin that's positive. 
And so about a 20, 25% of the time, we have to take the ladies back for a second operation to get a clean margin. Well, now there's new technology is also developed through the stamp money that allows us to intraoperatively tell whether our margin is clean or not so that we don't have to take the ladies back for additional surgery, spare them another anesthetic, you know, more discomfort, et cetera, et cetera. So those are some of the, the big things that have happened. And then the one other thing that I really want uh, the audience to be aware of is that, you know, we are funding breast cancer research, but some of the things that we're finding actually apply to other malignancies as well, such as ovarian cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer. So the real message here is that we're fighting cancer on all fronts. It's being done under the guise of the breast cancer stamp because that was what started the original thing. But we're actually affecting multiple cancers uh, with findings. So they all cross over, you know, find a chemotherapy agent for one cancer. It might also be effective in another cancer. So it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty, really cool stuff. We're making a lot of advances. I'm couldn't be happier until we find a cure until we find a cure <laughs> and that is i mean fantastic uh wow for anyone who's listening who has someone fighting those are those are just such huge beacons of hope um for, from all of the, that research what i want to ask you about the designs of the stamp who chooses the design absolutely so the united states Postal service is in charge of that and for this particular stamp they hired a uh incredible artist whose name is Whitney Sherman. She's uh, in Baltimore. She's not a cancer patient, not a cancer survivor, but she's a very talented artist. And she, uh, the, the stamp actually pick, depicts a picture of Diana Artemis, who's the Roman mythological protector of women. And what she's doing is she's reaching for her bow and her quiver to fend off an enemy, which in this case is breast cancer. And if you look at the stamp, the right breast has been removed and symbolically replaced with our logo, which is fun to fight to find a cure. Now, the position that she assumes is the position for some exaggerated um, uh, positions that we need for mammograms when we're looking for disease more deep to the chest. So it's a reminder to get your mammograms. And the position that Diana assumes is also the position for breast self-examination. So there's a subtle hidden message in the stamp for the ladies to get their screenings done and to do their self-exams. And then the rainbow of colors actually represents two things. One is that uh, the rainbow is typically the symbol for hope, which is hope for a cure. And the other thing is that the rainbow, we want to know that, that this is a disease that affects women of all colors. So we put the rainbow color in there to show that it's not, it is a disease affecting women of all colors. So yeah, it's a powerful image. It's such a powerful image. And the other countries that have issued the stamp are allowed to reproduce that image uh, for free. There's no charge to them. And then they translate it into their language and they figure out the denomination that they want to put on it for how much money they're going to do. And then also very interesting, Christina, in, the, in third world countries that don't have research infrastructures, the monies are used for outreach, education, and treatment of some of the ladies. That's fantastic. Did you ever imagine when you became a surgeon that this would be your life this many years later? How did you decide to become a surgeon specifically to treat breast cancer? Well, you know, I'll tell you, it's kind of interesting, too. I, when I, I did my general surgery training here in Sacramento at UC Davis, and I went to medical school as well here. And um, when I came to work at Kaiser uh, right out of residency, um, within a very few short years, I was appointed chief of surgery. And not because I was 
the great surgeon, but nobody wanted the job. Truth be told, okay, <laughs> it wasn't a, it wasn't a matter about talent. It was nobody wanted to do it. So I was a young kid on the block, and at that point, back in the uh, um, no late nineties, one of the biggest issues for a chief of surgery was to render second opinions. And there's nothing that generates a second opinion more than breast cancer. And so what I found myself doing was seeing a lot of the second opinions. And then I kind of, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe I have a kind of a bedside personality for this because I try to be really compassionate with these ladies and their families. And so the vast majority of the ladies that I saw actually wound up staying with me and I did their surgeries. And Though more and more of my practice started evolving into a breast uh, surgery subspecialty. And also very interesting that at that time, I identified a huge problem, uh, which has now been, I'm glad to say, corrected. And that is this. Back in the late 90s, or even early 2000s, do you know that across the country, it took a lady from the time of suspicion of, say, I find a suspicious mass, for her to get diagnosed and start treatment was an average around the country of 45 days because you because you see your primary care doctor they feel a lump they send you the mammogram you wait for a week or two for that they call you back then they send you to a surgeon now the radiologist does most of the of the biopsies of the needle but then they send you to the surgeon you'd wait a week or two to see the surgeon surgeon will schedule your biopsy a week later get the results back from pathology a week later schedule your definitive surgery a week later. So it was average about 45 days from suspicion to definitive treatment. Well, this I wanted to change. So I went to administration here at Kaiser with a long-term colleague of mine, and we convinced them to uh, let us establish a dedicated center of excellence uh, to breast cancer. So what that meant was putting most of the services under one roof. And so I could... I could see a lady today. If you came into me with a lump today, I could send you down for a mammogram today and possibly an ultrasound. The radiologist would do your biopsy. They would offer to do your biopsy today on the spot in the vast majority of cases, unless you're on a blood thinner or something, or you know, we have to wait wait a couple of days. We can do your biopsy and get the results back in 24 to 48 hours, and actually schedule your surgery in the next couple of days. So we've taken an average of a 45-day wait down to literally 48 to 72 hours, two to three days, we can start definitive treatment. And that this model that we set up here actually has become a national model for breast care because that's the way it should be. You know, there's, there's nothing that is, that is more anxiety-inducing for women who are diagnosed with breast cancer than to figure out their stage and what the ongoing plan is going to be and they don't they want to wait you know i mean they want to get things done and and who can blame them i mean you know it's very very anxiety provoking so i think that all these things kind of you know then the stamp came into play and so my life just basically got focused into this tunnel at, at the end of which was uh, breast cancer and now you are, um, I know that you have a new video out on lifestyle medicine. So talk to me about this kind of evolution of Dr. Bodai. So now you are, I know you do a lot of speaking and that you created this kind of to, to help with some of the engagements you couldn't get to. What would, what do people learn in this lifestyle video? Well, uh, here's what happened. So about four years, five years ago, I uh, gave up the practice of surgery for a number of reasons. Um, but I didn't want to retire, so I was looking for something to do. And 
Um, my colleague and I came up with this idea of setting up what's called a survivorship clinic. So when a lady is diagnosed with breast cancer, they literally go into kind of a coma and six months later they wake up perhaps missing a breast, they have no hair left, their sexuality has been destroyed, um, you know, they're, they're an emotional wreck and they kind of wake up and go, what, what happened to me? What, what have I been through in the last six months? So the idea of our clinic was to take the ladies who are just finishing acute treatment, and that acute being defined as chemotherapy and or radiation, not the hormonal blockers that they're put on for years and years. But when they're done with their acute treatment, chemo and radiation, we bring them into our clinic and sit down with them on a one-on-one visit. It's not a class. you got to do this individually. And explain to the ladies exactly what they've been through. And, you know, Christina, you would be shocked at how many women – have no idea of the type of cancer, and they had breast cancer, they don't know the type, they don't know the stage, they don't know how many lymph nodes were removed, how many were positive. Many of them think they have stage three cancer as opposed to a grade three, which is totally different. It's actually stage one and a grade three, not a stage three. And so we go through all this stuff in great detail with them. And then the other thing, a very important issue is that the treatments that we have, although they're very effective. They're also very toxic, and they have a lot of long-term side effects, particularly cardiac effects. And a lot of the chemotherapy drugs are cardiotoxic. The radiation is cardiotoxic. The um, monoclonal antibody therapies with drugs like Herceptin and Pergetta, they're very cardiotoxic. And the thing that's important to note is that cardiovascular disease, heart disease, is the number one killer of women in the United States. It's not breast cancer, you know. Literally seven to ten times as many women every year die from cardiac disease as do from breast cancer. Breast cancer is the most feared disease, heart disease, by far the number one killer. So in this clinic, we talk to them about the long-term side effects of the treatment, what to look for, because heart attacks in women present quite differently than they do in men. You know, we males typically get substernal chest pain running down the arm up the neck, et cetera, et cetera. Ladies present oftentimes much more subtle fashion with the sudden onset of severe fatigue, they can break out in sweats, pain often rates to the jaw and to the back. Many women have abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting as well. And so they go to the emergency room with these symptoms, and the doctor looks at them and goes, oh, you must have the flu or gallstones, appendicitis. And the fact of the matter is that the majority of ER physicians are still looking at data that was all done in men. So they think they're still of a mindset that heart disease is a disease of males. So they're not as aggressive at looking at women. So the chance of a lady dying of a heart attack across the country is twice as high as a man. And so the ER doctors are getting more educated about this, but they need to know more. So educate them about that heart disease and how important it is. We educate them about bone strength because osteoporosis is another one of these silent killers. You know, if you're over 65 and you break a hip, you have a one in three chance of dying because you get an infection or you get a blood clot, you know, there's a number of reasons, not the hip fracture so much. So we gotta educate the ladies about bone strength. And many of these drugs that we give them also weaken the bones as a side effect. So we educate them about that. We educate them about blood clots because whenever you're diagnosed with cancer of any organ, you're more likely to form a blood clot. So I'm sorry to digress, but where I'm going with this is that we really evolved from a survivorship clinic into not just survivorship, but lifestyle, because we now coach them on how to eat healthy, how to exercise, how to, you know, de-stress, if that's at all possible, how to practice, you know, it's, that's easy to say and hard to do, uh, sleep hygiene, et cetera. So uh, 
my colleague, Therese Nakata, and I put this entire program. She's the lead it, helped me set up the original Breast Center, Survivorship Institute, et cetera. And she also, by the way, was my number one supporter of the stamp. She was the first person that actually said, hey, this is a great idea. I'm going to help you do whatever I can. And so she's worked with me for like 25, 30 years. But we actually have evolved a program of lifestyle medicine. And that's what our focus is now is because the fact of the matter is, you know, 20 years ago, if you were diagnosed with breast cancer, your longevity was not going to be very good. Now, you know, we've got 95, 96% cure rates for stage one cancers, 70, 80% cure rates for stage two. So the vast majority of patients who are diagnosed with breast cancer live five, 10, and even more years. So there is time for them to change. And, you know, it's not like, oh, I got cancer, I'm going to be dead in six months, I'm going to eat, drink, smoke, do whatever I want, I'm going to go enjoy myself. We're going to have, you're going to have a nice, long, healthy life. And so our mission here in the clinic is to provide them the tools to live a active, healthy life and change their habits. And, you know, there's a lot of risk factors for breast cancer that are modifiable, number one being inflammation, number two being obesity, and number three being diabetes, which are things that we address very heavily in, in uh, not just the videos and the manuscripts that we've written and published in medical journals, but here every day in our clinic as well. Well, well that that's brilliant because I, I think, you know, I mean, if if it were me and, and with friends that I know that have had cancer diagnoses, the, the focus is always on get through the chemo and become clear. But after that, you're left with kind of the wreckage of what the what the chemo has done to you. And now nutritionally, you need to be fortifying yourself and, and with exercise. So that's, that's brilliant to have this kind of lifestyle um, guidance after the fact. So how can people find that or find information on that? Well, um, they can actually, they're, they can watch the YouTube video presentation that we prepared. And then um, there also is a, a manuscript uh, that anybody can Google if you, just put in Bodai slash Nakata, N-A-K-A-T-A. That's uh, Therese. Uh, she's the second author. We wrote a quite extensive uh, manuscript that was published in the Permanente Journal on Lifestyle Medicine. And, so, and that's a free download. If you just Google my name and Nakata and Lifestyle, it'll come up and it's a free download for anybody to uh, read and review. And, you know, it's so important to tell these ladies, look, you know, you – You've just been through a really horrible experience, okay? We don't want you to go through this again, and we have tools that can help you to make sure you don't. And that's really the mission of our of our uh, work here. All right, so before I let you go, I, ha I ask this to all my guests. What do you do to stay creative in your own life? How do you kind of recharge <laughs> <laughs> when you need to? Because you're doing a lot of different things. Well, you know, that's a great question. I... I my problem is this. Um, I have been gifted with ADD, and, you know, everybody thinks ADD is a disability. I think it's a gift. It's a gift if you know how to if – you, if you have attention deficit disease, if you know how to focus – that's energy. So if you know how to focus your energy, you can get a lot of things done. The people that have trouble with ADD are the ones that don't know how to focus. So for me, personally, I'll finish a project. Um, like we just finished that the video and whatnot. And now I'm kind of laying low for a couple of days, and I haven't, you know, usually in my at home, you know, there's papers all over the place, and 
And so I kind of put everything away. And then about three days later, I find myself becoming extremely bored and antsy, and I got to find something else to do. So now we're working on a couple of new projects. One of them uh, is very, very interesting. Um, we're looking at the uh, what's called the gut microbiome, which is the 100 trillion bacteria and fungi yeast that sit within our gastrointestinal tract, which is responsible. I is love responsible. this topic. I love this topic. So, you, know, you know, the microbiome, it's really cool. It's, it's so, um, it's extremely complicated, but it's such a key part to staying healthy. And, and the fact of the matter is there's good bacteria and bad bacteria, and we're trying to optimize the ratio of those two. You need both, but the good bacteria is particularly beneficial, obviously. And the gut microbiome can be tremendously influenced by the foods that we eat. And this is where this is where medicine is really clamping on to this whole concept of feeding our guts, which and by the way, about five pounds of your body weight is bacteria. And also, yeah, I've also, heard them. I've heard it called your second brain. It is your second brain. And in, fact, in fact, it's interesting you bring that up because it actually, the gut microbiome actually affects the brain as well and the entire nervous system. It's got tremendous influence on that. And, and so we're, we're reviewing all the data on that. We're trying to publish a paper on that. And it's very interesting too, it's very germane to, to our patient population, the ladies, because about three quarters of women who are diagnosed with breast cancer are estrogen receptor sensitive, which means the estrogen is feeding their cancer cells, which actually is a good thing because that means you have less aggressive disease. And we have drugs that can block the effect of estrogen. But very interestingly, there's a group of bacteria called the estrobiome, which is a subset of the full microbiome that metabolizes estrogen. And so <clears throat> their primary source of energy for these group of bacteria is fiber high fiber they love fiber and you know one of the things the american diet is lacking in is fiber we get about maybe 18 to 20 grams of fiber we should be getting 40 to 50 it's also good in decreasing colon cancer as well which is the third most common cause of cancer to death in the united states well the fiber the favorite food of the bacteria that's your biome is fiber and if you feed those bacteria fiber you're going to make them really happy and they're going to reward you by metabolizing your estrogen and getting rid of it for you even further if you have breast cancer so it's really fascinating stuff you know it's like um and it's exciting stuff you know, so, you know that's what keeps me going so yeah i get i get all you, you got me all hyped up here to get get back to work on this thing so I'm, uh, you got me excited i appreciate the motivation that's fantastic. So no golf for you, no, no music golf. or concerts or any of that. You're off on the next issue and the next problem you want to solve. I love it. Dr. Yeah. Badai, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We just appreciate your insight and all the work that you've done on behalf of women with breast cancer and everyone who loves them. Well, thank you for your time and support. I really appreciate it because, you know, without folks like you in the media, it'd be hard to get the word out. today, creator of the Breast Cancer Stamp, and he's a great example of what I was talking about a little bit earlier. When you have someone like a surgeon who can impact thousands of lives over the course of a career by doing surgeries every day, and then that person has an idea and has an inspiration and has grit to get something done, and they basically fracture themselves and impact the lives of millions of people. 
And that's what Dr. Budai is doing with that breast cancer research stamp. Literally, millions of people around the world are being helped either through the new clinical trials and the new drugs being developed or through the care they're receiving if they are, like he said, in an undeveloped country uh, where perhaps they don't have the medical facilities, but they can uh, caretake women who are dealing with breast cancer. So we thank him for his time. Um, let me tell you before we leave about New Age Designs, web design, development with a purpose, ambition, and analytics. If you need digital marketing, marketing, you need design, SEO, SEM, Google Analytics setup, they can do it. They will get you all set up with web hosting, and they know all the key technologies. New Age Design staff has spent decades managing various UX and web marketing projects for large corporations, giving them the opportunity to work with the most talented digital agencies in the world. They can certainly help you. Check them out at newagedesigns.com. And when you reach out, use the code FRESHAGENDA. Let they, uh, they will take great care of you. Great people over there at New Age Designs. And I want to thank you so much for being here. You can reach out to me anytime on any of my platforms, either on Facebook or Instagram or one of those social platforms. Or you can reach out on my website as well. Go to ChristinaMendonca.com and you can find me there. Again, thanks for being here. We'll talk to you next time. This is a fresh agenda, bringing your productivity and creativity together to generate your deepest work.